We come to the proclamation of God's Word, and we're getting close to the end of Peter's first letter. So we are in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. You can find that text in your worship folder on page 6, if you wish to follow along. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. This is God's Word. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you again for your word, and we would ask now that you would speak to us through it, that you would be with the proclamation of your word and move upon our hearts and minds in such a way that we would see your glory, your power, and your holiness, and in seeing it, we would tremble, but we would also rejoice because we would understand the mercy that is ours in Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray these things in his name. Amen. There's an old African proverb uh, from Ghana. It's also attributed to Alexander the Great, but it probably actually came originally from Africa. And it goes like this. You may have heard it. An army of sheep led by a lion can defeat an army of lions led by a sheep. So the idea is that one good leader can make the difference in a battle. If the church of Jesus Christ is to prevail and grow through this sojourn that we are on, that Peter has been talking to us about through this whole letter, and if it is to remain faithful as the people of God all the way to the end of this age when King Jesus returns to finalize redemption and to consummate, to bring to a completion all of his promises in the gospel, then it is vital for the church as God's people to be led along that journey well. And Peter's ultimate concern And this entire letter is for the dominion of Jesus Christ in all the earth. As he says later in in chapter 5 and verse 11, to him, that is to Christ, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And since he is concerned ultimately for Christ's dominion, Christ's kingdom in all the earth, he's also concerned for Christ's people in that kingdom the citizens of that kingdom, his church. And he's been especially focused on his church as they are journeying or sojourning as exiles because they are citizens of God's kingdom in this world that is often a hostile world towards those who are God's people. 
And God's people do not belong to this world because they belong to God. They are His people, His royal priesthood, His holy nation, His personal possession. And so the life that we live in this world as Christians is the life of an exile. Exiles on a journey through what is often a hostile and and dangerous land. And we need a guide or guides, people to help us, to lead us along the way. We need someone to show us and direct us and protect us from the dangers on the road, to correct us when we stray and turn the wrong direction. We need those who would lead us in compassion as we stumble or are hurt or are wounded. And so Peter now calls our attention as he's closing out this letter. This, this is the conclusion of his letter in chapter 5. And he calls our attention then to those leaders of God's church. But as he points us to the leaders, God is also calling us to see something else as well. He's calling us to look to the lion who leads his sheep. He's pointing us again to Jesus. Because what we learn here in these verses of this final chapter of Peter's first letter is that Jesus is the great shepherd. And because he is the great shepherd, his under shepherds that he calls to lead his church can lead with humility and his sheep can follow with humility. He begins by showing us that God does give the church elders to shepherd his people. And so we read there again in verse 1, as Peter is writing to these believers in ancient Turkey, he says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. And so we have to ask the question, well, what is he talking about when he says an elder? It is not necessarily a reference to age. These were not necessarily older men in the church, though they could have been. We see in Paul's uh, writings to Timothy that Timothy had the role of an elder, a pastor, a teaching elder in the church. And Timothy was a young man, but he was not young in his faith. And that's the idea here. It is those that have a position or an office. And then just as a side note, this is a footnote, you can tuck this away. I'm not going to go down the rabbit trail, but it's interesting that the Greek word for elder that is translated elder in the New Testament is presbyteros, which is where we get our term Presbyterian from, in case you're wondering. But God has always had leaders to guide his people throughout their covenant life and worship. So back in the Old Testament, that, of course, fell to the Levitical order of priests and to some extent prophets as well as they were the ones who proclaimed God's word. But they led the life of the people in worship as they sojourned through this exileship in this wor world, pointing to a city whose builder and maker is God, as we read in Hebrews regarding Abraham. 
And then when we come into the early church, we see that Jesus' first disciples become 12 apostles. That was a special office only given to those who knew, learned, and walked with Jesus while he was bodily on this earth earth. And that does include the apostle Paul, as the indication is that Paul spent time in the wilderness with Christ, the resurrected, glorified Christ. But as the church grew, the spiritual care of God's people was a bit too much for just 12 men. When we read after Pentecost, 6,000 were added to the church in one day. Can you imagine just 12 trying to lead the 6,000? And the church continued to grow. And so there was a need for additional leadership in the church. And what we see very early on in the book of Acts is that elders are appointed to lead God's people. So for example, in Acts 11.30, we read about the elders of the church in Antioch. And they actually send Paul and Barnabas to bring a relief offering to their brethren in Judea who were suffering from a famine. In Acts 15, we see the very first church council or presbytery meeting in Jerusalem. And they gathered uh, again to settle this matter of what to do with the Gentiles that were coming into the church who are not circumcised like their Jewish brethren. And so again, the church in Antioch actually appoints Paul and Barnabas to go to Jerusalem to that first presbytery meeting and meet, we are told, with the elders of the Jerusalem church, including the other apostles. And then we see another similar situation in Acts 20 as Paul calls another presbytery meeting. This one would be the presbytery of Ephesus as he calls and we're told all the elders there to join him. And then of course, James 5.14, there's instructions for those who are sick to take their uh, their need to the elders of the church who will then come and pray for them. And Paul gives, of course, qualifications both in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 for those who desire to be in the office of an elder or bishop. It's an interchangeable word. And so what we see then consistently through the New Testament is that there is this office of elder that God has given his church to lead them through this earthly sojourn as we look forward to the coming of our king. And we see further distinctions. I'm not going to go into detail about this, but in the scriptures between elders, there are those who rule and there are those who teach and that is why in our denomination the the presbyterian church in america we have uh, teaching elders usually they're called pastors and ruling elders together so here though is peter addressing those people those elders that have already we've seen laid out in the new testament and he turns his attention to them as he's finishing this letter It is to the elders of the churches in in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Bithynia that he now writes. And Peter has the credentials to do this. After all, he's an apostle. He stated back in verse 1 of chapter 1 specifically that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. He had been with Jesus in the flesh and learned from him, and grown from him. 
And it is to this apostleship that he is also alluding here in verse 1 of chapter 5 when he says that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And Peter himself heard Jesus' voice call him to follow him and be his disciple. And then he traveled with Jesus and lived with Jesus and ate meals with Jesus for three years. He saw miracle after miracle, heard sermon after sermon of the kingdom, calling people to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. He heard the authority in Jesus' voice as he proclaimed the very words of God as God himself in the flesh speaking. And of course, he watched Jesus suffer. He saw the rejection Jesus experienced in his own village of Nazareth, his own region of Galilee. He saw a crowd in Jerusalem who once praised Jesus as the royal son of David now call for his crucifixion. And he, he felt anger himself as he saw the mob come to arrest Jesus and he draws his sword to defend him. Now, of course, Peter failed too as he witnessed the sufferings of Jesus. We know that. He, he denied him publicly three times, but he was restored by the resurrected Christ. And so with all of that, he speaks with the authority then as an apostle addressing the elders in these churches and addressing all elders throughout God's church throughout all time. But notice, he doesn't lord his credentials over them. In fact, he identifies himself with them, calling himself a fellow elder. And so as he's preaching to these elders how they are to lead God's flock, he's preaching to himself too. For what he has to say to them is heavy indeed. And he wants these elders to know that Peter too will carry this burden that he is about to lay out to them. His exhortation is very straightforward. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Now, shepherd is such a unique way to describe what elders are to do. I mean, when you think about leaders, shepherds, uh, an actual shepherd, isn't the first thing you usually think of. I mean, you look at models of leadership, rarely do, if ever, do you consider shepherds as a model leader. When you think of great leaders as models of leadership, you usually think of things like kings, right? Presidents, those who rule with great authority and power over empires and nations, or maybe CEOs over, over corporations as their kingdom. You might think of military commanders like generals or admirals who lead powerful forces that can write history simply through the commands they utter to those armies or navies. When you think of models of leadership, you think of names like Churchill or Patton or MacArthur or Queen Victoria or Elizabeth I or Joan of Arc. Or you think of great influencers throughout history as great leaders. Henry Ford or Steve Jobs or Elon Musk. But you don't think of shepherds, do you? I mean, name one famous shepherd in history that is considered to be an example of leadership. And you cannot go to David 
Because David was also a king. Shepherds, they just seem so uninspiring, so down to earth, so ordinary. And that's kind of the point. I mean, who would want to follow a shepherd? Well, sheep. Sheep do. Flocks follow their shepherds because they've learned that their shepherds care for them. Provide them with with grass to eat, water to drink, shade in which to rest. They protect them. They keep them safe from wild animals and dangers. They watch over them in the heat of the day and the dark of the night. That's the idea behind shepherding. It speaks of a compassionate care, a, a present protection, and a gentle leading. And that is what God wants the elders of His church to do as they lead his flock through the wilderness of this wild and crazy world. Notice that Peter is careful to emphasize that the flock isn't the shepherd's flock. It doesn't belong to the elders. He says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. You see, you, as God's people here at Christ Church, you are his sheep. You belong to him and to no other. And so God's instructions here then are to the elders to care for His sheep, to shepherd them. And Peter gives three sets of contrast to explain how elders are to shepherd and exercise oversight over the church. And as a congregation, these are the kind of elders, the kind of shepherds you ought to seek out to lead you. First, he says, they ought to do it not under compulsion, but willingly. And this speaks of the desire to shepherd God's flock. Elders are to shepherd the church not out of duty, not simply because someone asked them, but out of delight, out of a desire to do so. To do something out of compulsion means a person does something whether they wish to or not. It's forced upon them, often unwanted. And when you try to push someone into the leadership that doesn't want it, it's going to lead to a problem. Instead, there must be a willingness to serve, a desire to be a shepherd. This is a desire that only God can put within a man's heart. And this is true no matter what the task or ministry or position or service God is calling us to. We cannot serve God out of compulsion. We're to serve Him out of love. That's why the two greatest commandments, the first is to love God with all your heart and love your neighbor with your, as yourself. They involve love, a willingness. And so to serve the church, an elder must have this desire. For it is from that desire that he will have the compassion to do what he needs to do as he cares for the church and exercises oversight over it. Actual shepherding, caring for sheep, it's messy work. It often involves getting your hands dirty. And it's true on a spiritual level as well. And so compulsion will only lead to a disdain for that task. A willing desire will drive a person forward for the love of God and for the love of their neighbors. 
Secondly, he says that elders should shepherd and exercise oversight, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So this exhortation speaks to motive. Elders are to shepherd, not looking to their own interests, but eagerly serving the interests of the sheep. That is their spiritual interests, guiding them to the great shepherd who is Christ. In Paul's instructions to Timothy regarding the requirements of elders, he says that elders must not be drunkards, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not lovers of money. Indeed, we know that the love of money is dangerous and a very destructive thing. And we no doubt can all point to examples in the church throughout time in history of pastors and teachers and elders and shepherds who were in it for their own gain. They cared more about their position and their power or their wealth than they did the truth. Now, when we look in the New Testament, we do see that financial compensation of elders did right, become a thing early. It was actually considered a commendable thing by Paul. Um, we read in 1 Timothy five seventeen through 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. But along with this principle to provide for those who shepherd came a condemnation of those who would abuse that office and that principle. And so we see these instructions. Don't be lovers of money. Don't teach for shameful gain. Furthermore, false teachers in the New Testament are often identified as those who are filled with greed. Peter will say in his second letter, speaking of false teachers, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. However, this exhortation to not shepherd for a shameful gain, it goes beyond just money, just cold, hard cash. It speaks to a deeper motive of the heart, the desire for selfish gain. And so that can be money, but it can also be power and prestige and influence. And so Peter is directing shepherds here, elders here, to not shepherd as one who seeks to get something out of that position. Rather to shepherd eagerly, that is to say, for the good of others. Third, he says, elders, shepherd the flock of God that he has given you, that you exercising oversight by not domineering over them, but by being an example. Peter's words in this final qualifying phrase of how elders are to shepherd reminds me of Jesus' words in the Gospels. For example, in Mark 10, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, for whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. 
Other rulers domineer. They wield authority like a club. They rule by fear. That's tyranny. Maybe you've listened to the uh, recent podcast that Christianity Today produced entitled The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. It's about this, what was a mega church at one time in, in Seattle, Mars Hill. And it really is documenting the story of the pastor who planted that church, Mark Driscoll, and his rise to celebrity pastor status, and then his consequent fall. And he fell not because of sexual sin, or uh, other temptations, but he fell from grace and from that role because he was domineering. He didn't take to heed, to heart, what Peter warns of here. And sadly, the church has been damaged by elders and pastors who take this approach to shepherding, of trying to just force them along instead of being gracious and loving and leading by an example of suffering. And so Peter calls here for elders to have a gentle care and concern. And that is true even when they are dealing with grave matters and and church discipline, when sheep are in danger and going astray, they never come at them harshly, but in love with a desire to restore. And that involves humility. It involves following the example of Christ Jesus who was willing to suffer for His own. And so by examples of servitude, Others follow the elders, the shepherds, as they are led forward in grace and godliness. And so then, elders are to shepherd not out of duty, but out of love. Not out of uh, a motive of personal gain, but an eagerness to benefit others under their care. And not as a tyrant, but as an example of humility, serving as Christ served. And if they do that, Peter says, to them is awarded a champion's crown. In verse 4, when the chief shepherd, that is Jesus, appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, this crown of glory, it's, it's uh, an image of a crown made of amaranth. That is a plant, uh, usually a purple or red flowers that was woven together. And it was given usually to uh, athletes who, who had won uh, a, a championship of some sort, perhaps a race, and it was placed upon their head. It was also given to generals after a great victory. It was to be a symbol of honor. And so that is why Peter calls this a, a crown of glory. But he's not speaking of a literal crown of amaranth here. In fact, there are two things we need to notice to see what does he mean when he speaks of a crown of glory. Is this a special crown that is only given to elders? Or is this different? I think what we see here is that this crown is the same crown, the same reward that all believers receive when they are faithful to Christ. You see, there are two things. First, notice who's awarding this crown. It is Jesus. He's the chief shepherd. Secondly, notice the language. He says this is an unfading crown of glory. And we've seen that language in Peter's letter earlier. 
back in the opening of his letter, he tells all believers that they are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ to what? To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. That inheritance is the promise of final salvation. That, that once this sojourn in this life is complete, once the journey is done and you stand in the presence of Christ, you will finally be free from all sin and suffering and death forever. That's the unfading inheritance. And that is also the crown of which Peter speaks here. And so what he's calling elders to do is simply Be faithful with what God has given you to do. Continue in that faithful faith, walking in the path of life for the glory of God. And for shepherds, for elders, that involves shepherding God's flock in a way that honors Him. Now, speaking of the flock, speaking of sheep, Peter has a word for them here as well. So elders are to humbly lead through careful and compassionate suffering. And sheep are to humbly follow their shepherds. And so he says in verse 5, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but, but gives grace to the humble. Just as the word elder did not speak of age, but rather a position in office, and so it is with this term younger. Now, it's not an office. Um, Elder has to do with seniority of position, and that's the idea here. Younger speaks to those who do not have that position, that seniority. So if you are an older member of the church, you are actually younger. But by younger, Peter simply means all those who are not serving as elders. And how then is everyone to respond to the elders? Well, he uses that word we've heard before once again, that word of be subject to the elders. Be subject to the elders' shepherding and oversight of the church. In fact, we saw a whole discourse in the middle of Peter's letter letter about this idea of subjection or submission. We were told that all of us are to be subject to every human institution. We saw that servants were to be subject to their masters. Wives, subject to their husbands. Husbands were to honor their wives as precious treasures. And finally, Peter says, all of you have a unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, and a tender heart, and a humble mind. And then here he says, and be subject to the elders. And so we see this theme Humble submission consistently through the body of Peter's letter. Why is he so concerned about humble submission? It is something that feels so countercultural because it is to our modern sensibilities to the point that for many people, the idea of it is offensive. Just the sound of it bothers them. But here's the thing. God overcomes all sin and death and evil and suffering through the gospel by means of 
submission. For it was the Son who willingly obeyed the Father, submitting Himself to the cross for His people, being made in the flesh, suffering and dying, and raising on the third day. And He did all that willfully from a willful heart of submission. And God continues to use this idea of subjection or submission to overcome the world and build His kingdom. You see, He grows His church not by arrogant selfishness that seeks its own good, but by a humble submission that trusts God in faith and thus leads it to serve others. Humble submission to God is God's way for His people to live life in this world and fulfill that mission to which He has called us. And so elders are to be shepherds. And shepherds are to protect, care, and guide the flock. You know, if an actual flock following a a real shepherd, at least in ancient times, did not follow the shepherd, it always led to problems, didn't it? I mean, you can imagine shepherds trying to lead sheep into a field and the sheep don't want to go and thus they don't get the grass that will nourish and sustain them. And if a shepherd suspects danger and tries to lead the sheep away from it, yet the sheep stray that way, what do they do? They put themselves in danger. They remove themselves from that protection that the shepherd was trying to offer them. And if water was needed, if the sheep were thirsty and the shepherd led their flock down to a brook to drink, and yet the sheep wouldn't drink, it was a problem. And so the idea is here that when God's people refuse to follow after those that God raises up to lead His church, it will hurt them spiritually. And that is why Peter says, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves. But it's not just the flock that is supposed to have humility. Because this this humility that builds this relationship between the leaders and the people is vital for the entire flock of God. And so he says it this way. He says, clothe yourselves, not just the sheep, but the shepherds too. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. True humility is utter and absolute dependence upon God alone. And so, true humility is an expression of our faith and our trust in God. You cannot have saving faith that is proud. It's always humble. Because it's acknowledging that, yes, I have broken God's law and I need His grace and mercy. That's humility. It takes humility to admit your failures and your sins and your brokenness and your complete inability to wash away the stain of your transgressions of God's holy law. It takes humility to completely rely upon the work Jesus has done on your behalf. And so we can see then why Peter talks a lot about this idea of humble submission. It is grounded in our faith in Christ. 
Faith that causes us to be born again to this living hope that we have as we are on this earthly sojourn. But to the proud, to those who boast in their own strength, who who arrogantly seek their own self-interest and worship at the altar of their own personal identity, Peter says, God resists them. But to the humble, He pours out abundant grace. And grace is at the very heart of His covenant love towards us. And so then, humble submission as an expression of our faith in Jesus is the means that God uses to continue to fulfill His mission in this world. That is why He gives to the flock elders to lead them, to shepherd them in humility. And that is why He calls His flock to follow the shepherds in humility. For it is our humility, our humbleness, that leads us to the great shepherd of our souls. Jesus said this in John ten eleven to His disciples. He said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down His life for His sheep. You see, your earthly shepherds, your pastor, the ruling elders, we will fail you. We'll do that often. We are, after all, sinners like you. But the good shepherd, he will never fail you. The good shepherd, Jesus, was willing to serve you perfectly, not out of compulsion, not out of some sense of duty, but as a loving servant giving His life for you as His sheep. As the Good Shepherd, Jesus never served Himself, but He was always eager to serve others. And as the Good Shepherd, Jesus was never domineering. Oh, He corrected His herring disciples, but He was never abusive. He ruled over His people gently. He gently led them and led them to the still waters of His grace to quench the thirst of their weary souls. You see, this good shepherd is the lion. He is the lion of Judah, and He is leading His army of sheep. And the victory is sure because He has already won. And so for us then, for all of us elders and sheep alike, shepherd and sheep, what we are to do is simply humble ourselves each and every day in faith, following our good shepherd. And we will obtain that reward that is promised, that eternal hope that is unfading. For Christ our Lord will lead us. He will lead us through the valley of suffering, the valley of shadow of death, And when we come out on the other side, we will emerge into the green pastures of His grace forevermore. And so let us, as shepherds and as sheep, follow our Good Shepherd to the praise of God's grace and glory. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word once again. We're thankful for the thoroughness of Your Word that You speak to all both those who lead and those who follow, that You instruct us how we might do these things, not for our sake, but for Yours. And so, Father, we ask that You would give us this humility, that You would help us to clothe ourselves with it 
in faith, looking to Jesus, our good shepherd, trusting that he will lead us ultimately to the peace of your good pastures. As we taste of it even now, through your word, through worship, through your sacraments, may that taste give us a thirst and hunger for more, longing for that day when we will see our King in all of his glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.